You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew Schwartz and I are delighted today to be joined by Alicia Kramer. Thank you so much. Alicia worked with the Global Health Policy Center for four years. She became a very dear colleague and friend, made major contributions across many areas, but particularly around reproductive health and family planning, the work we've done on all dimensions around gender and equality. She came to us initially as an intern while a senior at Georgetown University, where she studied global health and biology. And she so impressed us that we worked really hard to land her to come be with us at CSIS. She was here for four years, then she went to um, Emory Medical School, where she had a very distinguished tenure there. In the middle of that, went off to London for a year to the London School of Economics to do a degree in global health policy. We joined together while you were there, Alicia, when we showed our film, The New Barbarianism, at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. You joined us for that kindly. You're finished now. You finished a year ago. You've now uh, gone to work, prenatal care, deliveries, OBGYN at two hospitals in Atlanta, a public and a private hospital. You're now a fresh, a newly minted doctor, a resident there. We're so proud of you. And it just occurred to me that one of our alumna is deep in the middle of dealing with COVID-19 from the standpoint of women who are oftentimes poor and disadvantaged, who are pregnant and expecting, seeking help. So why don't we just start by asking you, tell us what your life is like right now, uh, the shifts you do, how you operate, and then tell us about the women that you serve and what their lives look like and how this COVID-19 crisis is impacting them and you. Sure. Well, thank you again, Steve and Andrew, for having me. This is really a treat to get to spend this time talking with you all. So yes, as you mentioned, Steve, I'm just finishing up my first year of residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And it has been a busy year, a whirlwind year, and quite the end to it as well as we are trying to address the COVID-19 pandemic um, globally, nationally, and of course here in Georgia. As for my day-to-day, we cover obstetrics, we cover gynecology, but in the midst of this pandemic, we've had to refocus and switch around what services we are continuing to staff um, to prioritize those that are essential. So that includes our obstetric care and our GYN emergencies. So as a program, um, as physicians, we've had to really make a transition to essential staff in the hospital at any time covering essential services. And meanwhile, those at home have been working on telemedicine, which is a whole new frontier. Many of us had very little exposure to previously, but I think is really going to be the new new norm in medicine now um, as we move forward with this pandemic is offering as much care as we can outside of the hospital in order to keep patients and providers safe. So as you mentioned, uh, here in Atlanta, we have a very diverse patient population, both at public hospital and numerous private hospitals throughout the Atlanta area. And again, serving a diverse patient population. We have um, some very disadvantaged 
groups, very vulnerable groups, underserved groups here in Atlanta that are served by our public hospital. Um, and so there are particular challenges that arise in day-to-day practice, but then specifically in the context of this pandemic with regards to those populations, while at the same time we have our private hospitals that serve some of the similar patient groups, but but also a more predominantly white, more predominantly upper class patient population. And so we are really having to address numerous issues across the different hospital systems, specifically as it relates to women's sexual and reproductive health. So I assume, I mean, prenatal care is, involves a lot of personal interaction on a routine basis over an extended period of time. You're trying to make sure that you, that those women are, if they're at risk, if they have some sort of special risk in their health, that you're detecting that and you're acting on it, you're counseling them, you're obviously having to think about whether they might have been infected or exposed to COVID-19. Tell us a bit about how difficult it is to manage those sorts of relationships when some of your contact and services are being are being scaled back and it's a more difficult environment or you're dealing remotely. But also if when you're coming into interaction with women who are about to deliver, how do they respond when you sort of raise these matters? No, you raise a really important point, Steve, which is that in prenatal care, it's a rare opportunity where there are multiple visits, multiple patient interactions, that's really unique to that period in someone's life. Whereas your primary care physician, you maybe see once a year throughout a pregnancy, you're seeing your physician every month at the beginning of pregnancy and then every two weeks and then every week until delivery. So we've had to think carefully on how can we adapt which of those visits need to be in person and which ones can we transition to a telemedicine checkup Um, But of course, we have numerous ongoing studies now to see what those outcomes are when we make those changes, because there is, of course, the chance that we are missing some important signs and symptoms when we conduct telemedicine visits versus inpatient visits. Things could Um, be falling through the cracks. Certainly. I mean, we think specifically in pregnancy about blood pressure. And and if you're having a phone call, you're not able to check your patient's blood pressure. Um, You're not able to do fundal height measurements to make sure that babies are growing. You're not able to do your fetal heart rate checks to make sure that you can still detect a heartbeat. So they're big questions. um, And we certainly hope we are um, not letting anything fall through the cracks. But of course, we know that in times of crisis and epidemics, as we've seen with Ebola um, and HIV, sometimes prenatal care is really what falls by the wayside. And so we're doing everything we can to make sure that that does not happen while also ensuring the safety of patients and providers. Say a bit about how what it's like when you're engaging with a woman who's coming to deliver and you're, you're trying to get that woman to cooperate with you and figuring out what her status may be vis-a-vis COVID-19. What are you experiencing? What are you seeing? Yeah, so we have just recently started to roll out um, universal testing of all of our pregnant patients who are admitted to the hospital. Um, And this is really only new in the last week to two weeks that we've been able to do this just by virtue of finally having enough tests available to make that possible. Um, And we've run into some challenges. I mean, first, we know so far that our asymptomatic positive rate, so women who are coming in not endorsing any symptoms consistent with covid and yet are still testing positive. That rate is at about 15%. 15% and that's of the women that come to you 
are asymptomatic positives. Of those who are tested, 15% are testing positive, even if they don't have any symptoms. Um, and that's consistent with kind of what we know that asymptomatic carriers, especially in young, healthy women, is not uncommon, um, but important to keep in mind that just because someone doesn't have symptoms doesn't mean they couldn't be transmitting the virus to other people in the hospital, whether providers, patients, or other healthcare staff, hospital staff. I think the other important and interesting statistic that has come out all of all of this is the refusal rate. You hear so much in, in social media, popular culture, you know, how much people want to get this test and want to get tested. And especially initially, you know, only the celebrities could have access to getting these tests. But now we're rolling out universal testing, and yet we're seeing that there are groups of patients who are refusing. And I think specifically in our public hospital, um, these are largely black, underserved patients who are refusing. And I think it's important to think about, you know, why that is. And it has its, its roots in racism in medicine and some of the atrocities that have been committed in the medical field. And the OBGYN field is not exempt from that. Dr. Sims was a white male OBGYN physician who practiced fistula repair surgeries on black enslaved women without anesthesia. We can certainly think back to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. I mean, there is large distrust of the medical system and of testing and experiments. Um, and so I think as we move forward with this pandemic, we have to think about these marginalized populations who haven't always been best served by our medical system and how to reach them and communicate with them effectively. We just recently, CDC released information that over 80% of our hospitalized patients in Georgia were black. And that's pretty staggering. So we know right now that here in Georgia, where we're practicing, this pandemic is disproportionately affecting our black community. Um, and we need to think carefully about what we are going to do to address that. Alicia, this is Andrew. So what's the result of what happens if patients refuse to get tested? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. So right now it means that we have to move forward with wearing full PPE when we are dealing with those patients specifically in delivery and operative settings. If they are asymptomatic in normal interactions, we are not necessarily wearing N95 masks, although still need to be wearing surgical masks. Um, but certainly for deliveries, for vaginal deliveries, which have the potential to be aerosolizing and C-sections where you might have the need for stat general anesthesia, also an aerosolizing procedure, then we do need to be wearing N95 masks. However, there's certainly an argument to be made given the asymptomatic positive rate, given refusal rates, um, and given the relatively low sensitivity of these tests that we should just be wearing N95 masks all the time. Are you finding that patients and their partners are worried about coming in to the hospital in the first place for fear that they may get infected at the hospital? Yes, absolutely. That is a concern. We see that patients and their partners are often coming in wearing masks. People are certainly making use of telemedicine, calling nursing advice lines, um, and really checking with providers before they come in. I think both hospital systems have relatively robust access to these advice lines so that you can talk to a physician 
report your symptoms and then they can advise whether it's necessary to come in or whether it's safer to stay home. And so that is certainly something people are concerned about um, and concerned with a newborn as well in the hospital setting and, you know, whether patients should be wearing masks, whether they should be distancing themselves from their newborn. I mean, these are all big questions. It's hard enough to have have a new a new baby, but this is a whole nother level of complexity that new parents are having to grapple with. On the testing issue, you brought up that you now have enough tests. Do you feel the tests are reliable? That's a great question. So we know the sensitivity of these tests are somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range, which is not as high as we would like them to be, meaning that they're not catching all positive cases. So I think there are people who are falling through the cracks who may test negative um, and yet, in fact, are positive um, and are, can still put people at risk. So I, it's the best we have, so we need to use it. And hopefully there are scientists continuing to work towards a, a more sensitive test. I think we are also now seeing rolling out of the antibody test to see if people had the disease previously and are now producing antibodies against it, signifying that they had the infection and are over it. Um, so I think that's going to be an important tool, not only for patients, but especially for health providers as well to know, is this something that they've already come into contact with um, and have already produced immunity against? What is it that you and your colleagues talk about when you have a minute to, you know, even just gather at the nurse's desk or the water cooler? Like, what, what do you guys talk about that is concerning you the most? That's a good question. I mean, I think for the most part, we have started to adjust to this new norm. I mean, I think it's an added burden on health units as we are needing to collect these tests already on a busy service. We need nursing staff and techs to bring them down to the lab. We are still, I mean, we have adequate PPE, but we still have to put it in secure locations, that there is still the risks of patients taking masks, of taking wipes that we use to wipe down equipment um, and to wipe down our masks after interactions with patients. So there's a heightened kind of feel of, of security on, on our uh, labor and delivery units and throughout the hospital, really, just knowing that these are precious commodities. And while we may have sufficient amounts now, it, it's always a question of how long it will last, um, and especially depending on the trajectory of this disease. And you're still getting issued an N95 mask for every two weeks of service, right? Yeah, so we are have been instructed to continue to use our N95s until they are soiled. And so what we do is wear surgical masks over the N95s for any procedures or during operations. Um, and then for more daily use around the hospital, cloth masks over if we are just conversing with patients. But yeah, I mean, we, I think the longest I have used an N95 mask is just about two weeks. And it's an interesting conversation to have. I know people have pointed a lot to the Ebola crisis and the proper use of PPE during that crisis and that using PPE correctly is just as important as using PPE at all. Um, and I think that was part of the reason there was such slow scale up of PPE use was experts and policymakers grappling with how important is this? Should we be using it if we don't know if providers and patients are going to be using it correctly? And could we actually be putting our providers and patients at higher risk if we issue this PPE and they're not using it correctly? So I think 
as we learn more about transmission of the virus, we will continue to get more guidance on when, where, and how to be using PPE. And among your coworkers, you know, you, you, some are more vocal and aggressive than others in trying to press for greater transparency and accountability and provision of protective gear and the like, including nurses, older personnel and the like. Say a bit about how this issue of uh, health providers speaking up for themselves, how you, what you've observed in the last couple of months. Yeah, well, I think there is such a diversity of providers in the hospital setting. You have the residents who are largely going to be young, either living independently or living with a partner, very few with young children, but mostly just kind of worried about caring for themselves and their partner versus some of the older physicians and nursing staff who may be caring for older parents at home many young children at home. Um, and so I think there are different different challenges and different concerns based on, on what your home life is like. Um, so I think nursing staff in particular, given their daily interaction and close contact with specific patients, have voiced significant concerns and real strong desire, need, pushing for having PPE and having surgical masks available at all times. And then again, the residents being a much younger population um, have remained relatively healthy within our hospital system. There have been very few cases of residents testing positive and of those few that have, none have gotten seriously ill. So in some ways that's very encouraging, but also important to recognize the different challenges various health providers face and the different concerns they have based on their individual situations. George's at the forefront of states moving aggressively to reopen. And it's been a source of controversy, Governor Kemp's actions, a source of controversy nationally and internally within Georgia and the like. And now we have a big discussion, new modeling suggesting that the premature reopening without adequate preparations uh, in place is gonna lead to a pretty dramatic spike in illness and death across the country that we're in this very tenuous period right now. How are you feeling about that, where you are? Are you anticipating a rebound? Are you preparing actively for that possibility now within the hospitals where you're working? Yes, I I would be surprised if we did not see a rebound. I think from, again, the modeling you mentioned and all the forecasting, it is not a safe time to be opening back up um, and we are putting people at risk by doing so. I think, you know, Georgia being a Southern state, a deeply religious state, this can mean religious houses, institutions opening back up, people attending church again. And the spread, I think, could just run rampant. We just don't yet know the full burden of disease. We are just now starting to really ramp up testing. And I think it is it is too early to be going forward with, with reopening. And I certainly have deep concerns. We're at a hard place medically because we have put many surgeries on hold now for four to six weeks. And the term elective surgery is is relative. You know, um, we have emergent cases that need to go back as emergencies, but we have surgical cases for cancer that, you know, are not emergencies need to be done this week, but need to get done and can't be put off any longer than this. So we are in the next couple of weeks going to start to reopen some of our surgical services and continue with some of these very necessary surgeries to serve our patients. 
And that needs to happen. And so it is hard to see the rest of the state opening up, placing us at more risk at the same time where we need to be making more necessary adjustments, which also will open us to some risk. But that's the kind of risk we need to be taking on right now is we need to be providing these the surgical care for some of our patients. And we really need the rest of the state to be supporting us and allowing us to do that safely. And reopening the state is only going to hurt us further. You know, not to trivialize this, but in all seriousness, the state of Georgia holds high school and college football as sacrosanct. And it seems to me that they want that to happen in the fall as scheduled. So I'm not sure I understand the need to rush to go out and open up bowling alleys now. Are people talking about this at all down in Atlanta? Certainly. I mean, I think people make light of it because it's so upsetting um, that it is almost come to be like a, a joking point because it is so outrageous. Yeah. I mean, in terms of priorities, they are all out of line right now. Um, and we are thinking short term. Our policymakers are thinking short term rather than long term. And it's hard to know where their minds really at. Do they, or do they truly believe that this is what's in the best interest of our state? Um, and if so, where are they getting that information? And if not, then this is a gross abuse of power just to make their numbers look good in terms of opening back up the economy. So I wish I had a better answer, but I think we, we're in for an interesting summer. How do you personally feel um, in this period in terms of your own personal security and safety? I know you were sick in February. Say a bit about how you feel about this and are experiencing this individually and whether you are feeling comfortable or not. Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. I I will say that I feel comfortable right now. I think that we have been trained well. I have very high respect and confidence in our healthcare systems. And if God forbid I or anyone else, uh, any of my loved ones needed to get care for COVID, then I would feel very secure in knowing that they were being treated by some of the really wonderful hospitals here in Atlanta. But I've thought a lot about how I would feel differently uh, if I had a young child at home, if I were older, um, if I had some comorbidity like asthma. And these are things that a lot of my co-residents are dealing with. We have co-residents who are pregnant. Um, and the guidelines around pregnancy and healthcare workers and what duties they should still be allowed to perform. I mean, we just don't have much information on that. Um, we have co-residents who have partners at home with terrible asthma. Um, and so the risk that they feel in coming home and going to work each day, I think it's a bigger burden for them. And so I, I feel particularly lucky in, in knowing that I'm a healthy young woman and that I have a healthy partner at home. But that's not the case for everyone. And, and that's certainly something that I, I keep close in mind. Alicia, one last question, uh, which is people have really stepped forward to try and acknowledge and thank health providers around the country and in other places around the world. Tell us how that's been expressed in Atlanta. Yeah, it's a really heartwarming story, I think, that many providers can speak to the outpouring of love and support um, in Atlanta and in Georgia um, for our health providers. We have gotten multiple donations of masks, homemade cloth masks. We have gotten food delivered to the hospital for us. Um, sometimes every day we've had some organization or individual provide us with meals. And then like 
many cities, really around the world, there's been healthcare appreciation at 8 p.m. in the evenings where in downtown Atlanta, folks are coming out onto their balconies to cheer and applaud healthcare workers. And I can just remember one specific moment coming home, having had to stay late after a shift and you're mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted and, and driving home and hearing that. And, and it brings you to tears. It really does because it, it means something. Um, and that appreciation and show of support uh, really goes a long way. Well, Dr. Kramer, and it is really awesome to be able to call you Dr. Kramer because we know you as our colleague, Alicia, but we are so blown away by what you're doing. And we thank you for your service. And we really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. And we'll check in on you again very soon. God bless. And thanks for all that you're doing. Thank you, guys. It's wonderful to be here. 